Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Happy New Year to you all. How has the start been to 2021? It's got to be better than last, right? (laughs) Well, we certainly started the year with a bang, with a bottle of sparkling wine from the Trentino region in Italy. The Trento DOC region was actually, in fact, the first region in Italy to dedicate themselves to the Metodo Classico, or as you may know it as, the traditional method, aka the way you make champagne. And inside this region is the Ferrari Winery, producing such good sparkling wine that their top wine, Giulio Ferrari Reserva del Fondo, is said by many to be the Italian Don Perignon. So we cracked open this very special wine, the 2008 vintage, and it went down very, well, quickly. (laughs) It's a wine made from 100% Chardonnay and aged on the lees for 10 years. So a little while. It's a very serious sparkling wine. In this region, there is the highest concentration of Chardonnay vines in Italy. And this is really due to Giulio Ferrari's efforts. So the guy who started this winery back in 1902, and he had this simple belief just to make the best sparkling wine that would be as good as champagne. It's quite an iconic winery. So do go and check them out if you haven't heard of them before. The Ferrari brute is about 18 pound a bottle it's not bad at all although if you want to try this special one it will set you back around 90 pounds uh you can find it currently at vinum.co.uk just think tropical fruits honey baking spices it's still super fresh but if you want the full tasting notes go to my instagram now what did you crack open anything special let me know and what are your resolutions for this year after all the negativity and certainly my own personal resistance to a few things that i could quite control last year my new year's resolution is to be more like water actually or should i say wine flow like wine i think it has a nice little ring to it don't you think but seriously i am an aries i was born in april i am all fire so this year for me i will be just letting go well that's the plan now what about dry january any of you trying it good luck to you i definitely will not be doing such a thing in fact I have seen a new hashtag trending in the wine world, and that's hashtag try January. So this is all about getting out of your comfort zone and trying different wines, regions, things you wouldn't normally go for. So I thought I would combine hashtag try January with a halfway house of hashtag dry January and bring you a company that is certainly shaking up the wine industry in terms of packaging with their luxury bag in box wines they're called the bib wine co and if you thought the bag in box wine was only for generic everyday knockback liquid it's certainly time to rethink so these bag in box wines they hold three bottles and they last for up to six weeks so i felt it prudent to share this with you seeing as this month tends to add discipline shall we say to the amount that people drink plus extra added bonus they are super eco-friendly so you can drink guilt-free and start ticking off some of those new year's resolutions if you are planning on going a little more green this year now there is certainly many alternatives for packaging these days there's the 
plastic quarter bottles, cans, of course, even the plastic single serve wine glass with that pull off lid. But nothing seems anywhere near close to replacing the iconic 75 CL glass bottle. But bag in box with its convenience factor and environmental factor, well, it can now add quality factor to its point of sale. Now, I don't know if you know, but about 40% of New World wines these days are shipped not in bottles, but in bulk. So the liquid is put inside a 24,000 litre plastic bladder placed neatly inside a metal shipping container. And this is also called a flexi tank. This shipping method is being adopted more and more often due to its eco-friendliness and now with such expertise on doing this and with the creation of much smaller plastic bladders, the quality of wine arriving into the destination is really good. It's not suffering the effects of travel in the way it used to in the past. It's now also available for those micro organic wineries. They can ship their wine in small amounts and have a winemaker in the destination country just stabilise the wine with minimal intervention and the respect that that original Vineron would have chosen. So it's actually really interesting how the technology has advanced and hence why now bag in box wines can be premium. It's also thought that Scandinavia has had some responsibility in moving things forward. I was actually shocked to find out about 60% of their wine is sold in bag and box. And that's actually due to the fact that the country doesn't allow price promotions on wine. So for that reason, the money saved on a three or four bottle box compared to a 75 CL glass bottle gives them that discount that they are basically looking for. So with such a massive percentage of wine being sold in box, it's encouraged those premium producers to look into doing it as well so they still get a piece of the pie in those markets. So if you're interested in hearing about this startup, Bib Wineco, the thoughts behind it, the obstacles and how this type of packaging is just miles ahead in terms of being sustainable, let's now go over to the chat with one of the founders, Oli Leah, now. Oli, thank you so much for joining me today on this cold grey but Christmassy <laughs> afternoon. Thank you, Janina. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely grey and fairly miserable and um, a little bit wet here, but um, it's typical. it's Christmassy. Yeah, typical, exactly. And I've got a glass of wine in my hand. And before clicking the record button, I did check that you is it now in your hand? Uh, it is. Yes, I can do a cheers if that's we the go. direction we're going. Can we make a clink somehow? Wait, wait, hang on. <laughs> there we go. That was not a clink at all. I need no, to bring. I've got bring nothing to clink on. Wait, wait. Oh God, I'm hitting a pen. <laughs> That's the most appalling. <gasps> yeah. It almost sounded like you had noise. Whatever. Cheers to you. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Thank you very much. Take a sip. For everybody who doesn't know about the Bib Wine Co., Ollie, you're going to tell us all about this. So you started this company with three other siblings. That's Where right. did it come from? You decided, I want to put wine in a box. I mean, these already existed, but these are premium wines. So how did the whole concept start? Um, yeah, there is a little debate about who came <laughs> up with the actual idea amongst us. Um, uh-huh. One of the reasons is that we'd talked for a very long time about the idea of actually finding good wines in a box mm-hmm, it wasn't an mm-hmm. idea of ours we just were hunting for good box wines and mm-hmm. you know obviously they didn't exist um, and we had been having that thought for maybe 10 15 years and we'd go to the wine merchants you know supermarkets wherever and they, we could never find anything mm-hmm. and this is principally me and my brother tom okay. but it was a discussion that all of us siblings had had a few times and one christmas i was living in paris and i hosted christmas with all of the family mm-hmm. uh, which was lovely and 
and I did serve a box wine that was absolutely delicious that ah. uh, that I'd found in France. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think anything more of it, but my brother Tom said, "Oh, that's great news! Finally, it here, exists. good box wine. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it exists." So his initial thought actually was, "Well, let's see if we can find it in the UK. You know, I want to stock up at home, mm-hmm. and it'll be my house wine, and this is mm-hmm. what I've been looking for for ages." So we were very quick to find that that didn't exist in the UK, and actually. <laughs> Good box wine in France is pretty hard to come by still, and they have a lot of box wine, but the good stuff is not hugely common. So I think it was the next day uh, we were already talking about doing it ourselves, and that's where the arguments have comes in. You know, who had the actual idea? You know, my memory is that the next day we were talking about doing it. Uh-huh. I, I'm not going to claim that it was me. Claim um, it, claim but, it. You're the one I, talking. I, <laughs> claim it, claim it. But it, it was, I mean, I think it really was a fairly group effort. And okay. there's a certain amount of FOMO in our family. That fear of missing out, I think, led to all of us being on board. We had never thought about having a business together, really. Uh-huh. But once one person started talking about it and then another, you know, we were talking about it together. And mm-hmm. It was just never going to be any possibility of three of the four of us starting a business. So it, it ended up being all of of us um, and it, it was really lucky that that was the case because we each bring something slightly different to it and we've never looked back within a few months we had started speaking to wine experts and they all said the same thing which was that we should meet this guy called Justin ah that's how you met Justin Howard Sneed who is a master yeah, of wine mm-hmm. that's right and yeah and it, he's now a wine consultant so Justin's history and background is mm-hmm. as a buyer principally so he ended up he worked with Safeways and Sainsbury's and lots of different companies and then ended up being the head of wine at Waitrose and after that for many years was head of wine at Direct Wines the company that owns Lathwaite's so he's got a buying history he's one of the youngest or quickest people to become a master of wine Ah, okay Um, yeah he's got an astonishing brain and he's you know a bit of a revered expert really in the field one of the things that stands out with Justin is the fact that he's just an all-round nice guy it's really hard to dislike him um, despite his success Uh, so (laughs) You tried. You tried. Yeah. And he's he's gone on he got he after Lathwaite's he went on to become a wine consultant and start making his own wines. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the point that we came to speak to him. And we just haven't really looked back from that point onwards. Yeah, well, Fab, so he does, as you mentioned, he has one of his own wineries, Domain of the Bean. And you have that in your wine range. Now, was that one of your first wines that you started with? So the Bee Pink, which is his rosé, was in the opening range. It wasn't one of the first wines to be put in that range. Mm-hmm. He was nervous about suggesting it. Oh, okay, we were nervous imagine. about asking for it. <laughs> um, he's got, you know, that's a business that he's running. We would sort of essentially be stealing customers um, from him. And it's, it was quite awkward. And there's a certain <laughs> amount of, you know, trying to run a company for the first time and thinking about keeping certain transactions at arm's distance and all of these other mm-hmm. things. So it was all a bit awkward. It was, you know, just very British and not wanting to talk about money and stuff like that. But um, mm-hmm. in the end, when we came to discuss having a rosé, he, he said, look, if you wanted to, I can take myself out of the decision, but I'd be happy to offer up some of my rosé. And we're incredibly glad of it because it's a fantastic wine. It's tremendous value. It's made in the Roussillon, and mm-hmm. but in the Provence style, which is the fashion these days mm-hmm. for this sort of very light dry and fresh rosés and it was really what we were after and what we needed but because it's not from Provence so much better value so much better value but it's Mm -hmm. just as good and I think you know better than most actually better than most 
really quite expensive Provence rosés that have become quite a lot about the marketing. Still, you know, they have nice wine, you know, the, the whispering angels of these worlds. You know, mm-hmm. It's it's nice, nice wine, but the final five pounds on your bottle is going into a sort of grey goose style marketing package or something like that. So um, <laughs> nice way to say it. Yeah. 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 So we were tremendously pleased and we were surprised when we started scratching at the surface that he would allow us to have his white wine. So that joined the following year joined the range. Yeah, um, and that's a Grenache, Grenache Gris, Grenache Blanc. It's mix. Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris and a little bit of Roussin. And what's really nice about that is they're lovely South of France Roussillon native grapes. Mm-hmm. But the, the Grenache Gris is the bit that changes it slightly from what you would normally expect from a wine of that style. So the Grenache Blanc and Roussin are more normally and more widely used. Mm-hmm. Uh, often there's a little Grenache Gris, but it's quite underutilised, I think. And what that adds really is freshness and a bit of zing. Mm-hmm. And so this wine, it's got all of the big, fat, round characteristics and huge fruit. And it's very expressive. There's lots of tropical, lots of stone fruit. It's had time in smallish oak barrels, um, a certain percentage of it. So that adds all the weight and the clove and spices. Uh, But then that Grenache Gris evens everything out by giving this almost Sauvignon-esque zing to it and a little bit of uh, citric nature. So it's it, it's a cracking wine and it, it allows it to be drunk in the summer of a summer evening as well as being great in winter. It was my favoured white wine for Christmas this year. Ah, okay, good to know. I've had some of the domain of the bee wines before. As far as I know, he has a, a very small amount of hectares and they're all very yeah. low-yielding vineyards. They're so concentrated. They're fantastic. So it's amazing to have that in your portfolio. Yeah. Yes. No, we're, we're really lucky and there's potential that we might be able to convince uh-huh. Justin to go a step further, but we will see. It's uh, <laughs> nothing confirmed. So we're, it's something that we're, we're trying. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So, and of course, it fits in with your ethos, I suppose, because you're, you've got quite a few wines now in the portfolio from lots yep. of different countries and everything is small production, kind of family owned. What's the ethos? What is the concept of the wines that you choose to get in these bagging boxes? It's a, that's a really interesting question. So there's a piece of advice that Justin gave us when we started was that you've got to have something to uh, narrow down your mm-hmm. your buying options because there's thousands and thousands <laughs> or hundreds of thousands of wines out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just look for the sorts of wines we would look for. And I guess like a lot of other people, when we go into a, a wine merchant, when we travel around looking for wines, we want wines that are made with passion, that are characterful. We want wines that come with a story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that story often comes side by side with the character in the glass. Mm-hmm. And actually, from the start, one of the real advantages of bag-in-box wine is an environmental benefit. The, the carbon footprint's 10 times lower than bottled wine. And actually, it was always a bit of a driving force with us that we wanted sustainably made wine mm-hmm. that ethos could run throughout. And also, I believe that winemakers that make their wines with sustainable methodology, whether it's organic, whether it's biodynamic, or whether it's a non-certified but very sustainable outlook. Those are the winemakers that are taking greater care often with their wines. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes hand in hand. If you were to narrow your range down to sustainably made wines and look at organic and biodynamic, then you're you're narrowing it down on the whole in a positive manner. For sure. Well, talking of organics and biodynamics, the wine that you have sent me, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, and also gave a little bit, only a little bit, to my partner, and he gave it the big, big thumbs up. He said, fruity, Great. aromatic, spicy, and yummy. They, I think, yep. were the four... <laughs> 
adjectives, which I will uh, highly go with. So it's the Chateau Corinneau de Cuvée Claire de Lune, and this is an yes. organic and biodynamic winery, and I assume probably quite small as well to fit in with your ethos. And it is yes. absolutely delicious. So for anybody who's interested in this one, price-wise £39.90. And that's right. I wrote down the equivalent per 75 CL for everybody is £13.30. And I have to say, for the price point, the concentration, the freshness, the intensity is fantastic. It must have seen some oak because I'm getting this kind of slight marzipan-y almond spiciness. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They give it a minimum, I think it's 15, between 15 and 18 months, depending on the vintage, depending on the concentration, but to get it to the level that they want it to, to be at before releasing it. So... It's had a decent amount of time mm. in oak and, you know, the small oak barrels. So they, they introduce quite a lot of oxygen throughout the process. Mm-hmm. They're just really skilled and lovely people as well. It's a couple called Christoph and Benedict. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely lovely. And they bought the estate in the 90s and have made it their own. And it, it is hard to make organic wine in Bordeaux at all. Oh, yeah, because uh, it rains a bit. Be- <laughs> It rains a bit and the, the moisture sort of hangs around. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're terribly skillful to be able to do this, not only organi- you know, organically, but with the additional restraints of biodynamic agriculture. Mm-hmm. They do have one advantage, which is that they're right out as far east as you can go and still call yourself Bordeaux. So mm-hmm. they're, they're out by a little town called Saint-Foy-le-Grande, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very famous market and is lovely and beautiful. But essentially all around that area is Bergerac wine, and they're just in this little sort of peninsula of Bordeaux. So they're quite lucky to have the Bordeaux Appellation where they are, and they're also quite lucky to have a bit of the sort of slightly drier Bergerac climate and being out where they are you know it's typically made with 100% Merlot the next winemaking areas in towards Bordeaux the central mm-hmm. Bordeaux are Saint-Emilion Pomerol so you know for me this is the same sort of style and as you said tremendous value I can drink it without food even though yes. it's got huge tannins but they're um, velvety at the same time they're they really, are they mm-hmm. are I, I think it's really really impressive what they've done with this wine and this is the second wine we had from them we had the 2016 and we thought actually 2016 was such a good year for Bordeaux that we had just got a cracking vintage from a good winemaker mm-hmm. and keep our fingers crossed that they can get near it. But actually, I think this 2018 is just as good, if not a little bit of an all-round better wine. It's slightly more approachable whilst not losing anything that the other one had. We've got the 2019 stuck in some interesting COVID and Brexit-related haulage <laughs> traffic, um, mm-hmm. but it's started its journey. So um, okay. really looking forward to that it's tasting amazing a little younger in the fruit mm-hmm. but um, with all of the same sort of density and layering and spicing and the tannins are a little younger but still you know still lovely and provide all that structure so they're just brilliant they seem not to be able to miss when it comes to their wines good do you have any of the 2018 left uh, there is the not there is no! not any, any no! left to purchase but i I can guarantee when the 2019 <laughs> comes in, you won't be disappointed. In the same way that we've not been disappointed. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. It's a lovely wine, and I think it'll keep developing for a little while longer as well. Oh, it's stunning. Honestly, I think the intensity of fruit for me is this really almost almost stewed plums, but at the same time, it's yeah. still quite fresh. And then loads of these sweet baking spices and like maybe some yeah. dark chocolate shards. It is actually, ironically, I think you said you were going to send me something that was quite Christmassy, and I suppose it is because... It's big and bold and juicy and spicy and that velvety tannins, that soft, plush mouthfeel. But that's what Merlot, if Merlot is done correctly, 
That's what Merlot can do, right? This is actually a pretty good example of a really spot-on Merlot. It's it's interesting, isn't it? The the um, bad street cred that Merlot uh, mm. gained, I guess, mainly through film Sideways, <laughs> but but also yes. you know it's probably more than that through a lot of fairly average, just uh, what you would describe on a Marks and Spencer's bottle as sort of smooth and velvety, fruity Merlot. But it's very very drinkable mm. and quaffable, but it, it sort of lacks when made in that sort of larger scale and at the cheaper end it sort of lacks um, lacks character but actually it's a great variety that can go on and do really great things absolutely now I always say to people you know when we're used to oh Merlot it's a knockback wine I mean come on Petrus in Pomerol yeah. so we're talking obviously not quite the neighbour here but um, the point that Merlot is so dominant in that blend and Masetto I tasted a Masetto from Tuscany once and that was a incredibly special experience and I only tasted it yeah. once but I, <laughs> I remember I remember the emotions more than the flavour yes. definitely it's a, a wine to seek out if you're ever lucky enough to to get your hands on it for sure now what yeah. are you drinking because you are drinking something slightly different from the range when I was getting set up mm-hmm. for this chat I had to choose where I would be um, <laughs> I'm at home and have three children, so I needed to hide in the most secure place <laughs> I could find, which, which is... at this time of day is my bedroom. Okay. So I just thought that I needed something that was a little bit more relaxed and less oh, full on okay. and more bedroom uh-huh. worthy than than the uh, Chateau Coronet. So uh-huh. I've gone with the next one down on the ladder in terms of alcohol and strength and bigness mm. and tannins and, and uh, something which is a bit more of an all-rounder, which is the Chateau Ponzac Maintenant ou Jamais. Uh, which is a mal- good. Well, I, I try. Uh, it's a it's a Malbec and it comes from Cahors. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, actually having drunk this, it doesn't lack intensity or interest or anything like that. I, mean, I know that because we bought it, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's bloody good. And it's, um, I think, a really interesting sort of halfway house between the classic Cahors style, which is austere and heavily tannic and needs about 30 years in a cellar before anyone can ever bring themselves to drink it mm-hmm. um, and not particularly marketable nor is it good without food and there's lots of things wrong with it but it has lots of depth and interest mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a wine geek wine and then Argentinian Malbecs which are all about fruit and fun and approachability and, and, and giving straight away and this wine comes from this chateau called Chateau Ponzac a, a lovely couple called uh, Mathieu and Virginie but they also work with this chap called Pascal He's a bit of a, he's leading a revolution in the Cowal area. Mm-hmm. And what he brings is actually a little bit of influence from Argentina. He, you know, he says you shouldn't need and you can't really afford to be trying to sell wines that need a lot of cellar aging. We should be trying to make wines that are actually joyful to begin with and mm-hmm. nice to drink straight away. So bringing a little bit of that fruit further forward, but not going all the way into the Argentinian style and softening out some of the edges and making the tannins easier to deal with. So this is lovely and fruity and it has lovely softened tannins. It's got structure. Um, it's a little less alcoholic than an Argentinian Malbec. So we're talking to 13% instead yeah. of some of the, 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 the huge Argentinian numbers. Um, but it combines that complexity and depth and interest and that sort of the thing that makes you keep on going back to your glass because there's something that you can't pin down or you get a new flavor or a new smell each time and it's got that which i think brings from this french style of dealing with the mm-hmm. the, the grape variety okay so it's a halfway um, house. and yet it's got the fruit yeah and it's it's a halfway house and they call it maintenant jamais which which is now or never so um Love it. you know they're they're playing on that idea that actually this is a wine that's ready to go and i think they've done a tremendous job with it and and Probably crucially for 
winemakers in Kaur, and they're main they're now mainly getting on with this, but it's they call it a Malbec, um, and they put that on their label. Yeah, you haven't chosen to use Cot or even Asawa, the other option that they would no. more likely use in Cahors. Is this more global, just recognition of Malbec is more well-known? I think um, even in other parts of France, um, Malbec's more well-known than Cot. But certainly, if if you've got any hope of selling your wine outside (laughs) of France, then calling it some local version of... I mean, obviously, they probably feel a bit hard done by because they were growing the grapes Mm -hmm. sometime before, but they just had to jump on board. You know, Malbec's incredibly marketable. Mm -hmm. And it is for us too and you know to be quite honest it this you know we sell more of this wine because it has Malbec on the label than we would if it didn't. Fab. So no, yes. we've talked about the two wines that we're both drinking yeah. can we just talk about bag in box for a second and the fact that you know this preserves the wines for you're saying six weeks I unfortunately won't be able to test that out because it will probably last a few days. Um... <laughs> well that's that's the nice thing for us it very rarely does get tested out. <laughs> I mean, I should say we say up to six weeks because yes. at the end of the day, it's, it's wine. And if you think of wine in a bottle, once you've opened it, mm-hmm. you know, some wines will go a good few days. Some will only go one before you can really notice it. Mm-hmm. And there are some rules, but there are probably no hard and fast rules. If you chuck them in the fridge, you tend to get more time out of them and, and things like that. So it's the same with boxes. You know, they won't all go all the way up to the very last day of that six weeks, but they'll, they'll get bloody near. And, you know, I think it depends also how you treat them. If mm-hmm. where you're storing them, how warm it is. If it's a white and you, you have the advantage of being able to put it in the fridge, and they're all fridge-friendly sizes. So, yeah, they'll do four to six weeks pretty easily. That's down to the you know the, the deal with bag and box is it's a collapsible bag inside a box. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of secrets in the name, and it's a tap that allows the wine to come out without letting in much, if any, air. So basically, the two things are the, the bag, which has a high oxygen barrier, and the tap that doesn't let in much air. Means means that the wine stays protected from air and the oxygen in the air, which is really, at the end of the day, the sort of enemy of, of <laughs> wine. Um, and it you know keeps it away for longer and that just allows it to, to stay fresh for, for longer. So that's the deal like, you know, with how it lasts for longer. And, and that gives it the convenience factor. So you can have a wine, you know, I'll have two boxes, sometimes three on the go. At the moment, my wife's pregnant, so it's just me drinking. But yeah. I don't really ever worry about getting through the wine. I don't drink huge amounts of wine. Mm-hmm. But I can have a glass a night or a couple of glasses a night sometimes and chop and change. And I'm never thinking about, should I open a bottle? You know, will I finish it? I'm actually, you know, okay, no one's going out at the moment because of COVID and all Mm -hmm. all of that. But I'm not thinking, well, I'm not here tomorrow and then I'm away the next day. So I shouldn't open a bottle tonight because I might not finish it. It might, you know, Uh I never have that decision. It takes out the stress. It does. I think it, it, in a way, it makes it more accessible because I, I think for a long time, I would drink during the week, I would be more uh-huh. likely to have a beer or a gin and tonic, even though I'd prefer a glass of wine. You're not going to do it because of the opening a bottle factor. No, nope, I agree. Um, and in a way, that's a bit sad. So actually now, with a decent box wine, you can have a glass whenever you like it. Absolutely. So it just takes that out. But you've got it on tap whenever you want it. Good for large groups, good for a person by themselves. And, you know, fits around the drinker, I suppose, rather than the other way around. And then, you know, it is better value. We've found, on average, between... 
20 to 30 Mm percent better value and that's just because we can ship it you know it ships much more tidily by the box we also ship it as bulk wine essentially but in small thousand liters of bag in box kind of um, Mm -hmm. containers and you get better shipping logistics you know savings along the way and actually boxes are cheaper than bottles and and things like that so the end result is better wine for your money and then all of those points that you're saving logistically you're also putting in to the environment fewer polluting emissions and and cutting on greenhouse gases principally co2 so the environmental side is really massive you know there's almost half a kilo of carbon dioxide equivalent saved with every bottle or three times that with every box so it's a huge potential carbon saving we did some sort of back of a fag packet mass and um i I can't remember the number it was it was the equivalent of taking hundreds of thousands of cars off the road and there's you know a huge potential Mm. impact you know, we drink well over a billion bottles of wine in this country a year. Um, yes, so, we do. You know, <laughs> the, the mass is, is pretty is pretty simple to get the saving. So yeah, we're you know obviously convinced, and that was why when we came across it and that Christmas, you know, we were already massive fans. So it didn't take us uh, long to to come to the point of a business plan, I guess. So this is guilt-free drinking and stress-free drinking. Yes, exactly. And it covers all angles. Gotcha, Nina. You should do our marketing for us. <laughs> <laughs> you well, you know, up, uh, better than we ever have. I'm available. I'm available all year. So, <laughs> when you were setting this up and talking about logistics and meeting winemakers and I don't know, organising packaging, there must have been a few disasters. Were there a few things that went wrong or a few shocks along oh, the way? Shit. Disasters. Uh, <laughs> we did have a point where we had wine in bags, and the first part of the bagging process is to bag them. Mm-hmm. The second part is to put those bags. This is just the way we were doing it at that point. Okay. There are sort of fancy lines where the you know it all happens at once and um, with conveyor belts and stuff, but that's not how we were rolling. <laughs> and so we found ourselves with quite a lot of wine in bags and mm-hmm. then realised that the bag provider, I mean, there's some debate whether the bag provider provided us with the wrong bags or we bought the wrong bags from them. Still still unconfirmed. Yes, it's, it still is a matter of bone of contention. But we found that they didn't fit in the boxes. So. Oh, and you'd already um, bagged everything? Well, we had bagged not everything. We had bagged mm-hmm. half of A wine. Okay. So that was a problem, but then we couldn't find any other bags, so we couldn't change the box. I mean, it was a, seemed like a disaster that we'd never be able to overcome. We found a way through somehow. So, um, <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't and lose like, it. No, we didn't. But we just, there were things like that that seemed to happen all the time because you're basically inventing everything from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, they, those sorts of things just, they come along and uh, they make you feel like your whole world world is about to you know, be well it has been turned upside down but it, you know that's the really nice thing about being in a business with siblings with people that you know incredibly well trust very well uh, and you know we're all there for each other mm-hmm. and we make a pretty good team so we can find ways through this and then having people like Justin who's got this weird sage wisdom about him and <laughs> An ability just to sort of cut through all the bullshit and say, have you thought about this? And you're like, oh, my God, we spent the whole of whole of yesterday discussing this with each other. <laughs> we never once thought of that now seemingly incredibly simple solution. So, yeah, we, it make, uh-huh. we make a pretty good team. So we've oh. we've um, got through everything so far. So have you been to all the vineyards and visited the wineries of the wines that you're doing? Uh, no, God, no. Oh, I mean, no. So I, oh. I would love... You know, I think when we set the company up, yeah. my initial thought was, uh, this is great because we're going into a business where I'm going to spend at least half of my time in sort of soft top classic cars touring around the <laughs> south of France, driving from, 
you know, chateau to chateau and then maybe heading down to Tuscany. And, and it's, um, if you tried to do that, you just wouldn't taste enough wine. Uh-huh. That's the problem. You know, we've tasted thousands of wines and you need a sort of more efficient way of tasting them than traveling from one site to another. So the other side of it is we've been to quite a few of them. We know them all very well. And, you know, some of them are contacts of Justin's from the past. Lots of them aren't. But, you know, Justin spends quite a lot of time in France and we've got some base there. You know, we do visit them, but it's never me. It's always Justin. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think the sad truth is I would rather if we like the people and we like the wine and maybe Justin has visited or maybe we've met them somewhere else but you know they're paying for a plane ticket mm. for me to go and visit and get some photos and say i've been there and then come back i mean all of that money basically goes on the price of the wine so i thank think you it's, thank you for not leaving the house yeah. and letting us buy more affordable quite, wine. we appreciate quite it. well i'm glad i'm <laughs> glad <you>? but <laughs> Thank you for your sacrifice. <laughs> I mean, I hope to be able to do a bit more of it, but it's it's not a rule that we have to go to each of yeah. them. And and actually, you know, one of the ways that you narrow things down and taste a lot of wines is by going to fairs. So mm-hmm. we, for example, especially with French wine, and there's a very high concentration of wines from the south of France that are organic, that we could spend five weeks traveling around to tick off, you know, a handful of those wineries and taste their wines. And yet they're all at Millardine Bio, which is a, an organic wine fair that happens in Montpellier. Mm-hmm. So it'd be, it would really be a huge waste of time driving, you know, to taste those wines because you're not going to get them all. In fact, you know, Justin might taste, I'm a, I've been with Justin and Fleur, who's our buyer as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those guys are machines. They can taste 200 wines in a day, get really accurate notes, get it all into their iPhones or notepads or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're at an affair like that for three days. And that's an an awful lot of wine. It's actually pretty hard work, yeah. It's really hard work. Mm -hmm. I was amazed, you know, the skill that you develop. I think the thing that amazed me first was the fact that Justin seemed to be able to hit a spittoon from well over a metre away. Um, (laughs) Great party trick. Yeah, it is. Because when I tried to do it from, you know, half a foot away, I'd still get it all down my beard. So, um, (laughs) yeah, it's... That and he carries around a um, breathalyzer. Does he now? And, yeah, to, because he, you know, he he'll, sometimes he'll need to drive, but you know, yeah. he's always like naught point naught. He doesn't swallow any of it. It's amazing. It's a it's a real skill. But what's the, what's incredible is then coming back to his notes six months later if we've bought one of those wines, one of those many wines tasted, mm-hmm. whilst my head was starting to spin and I won't be able to remember which one it was, his notes will be the first place that we go to refer to when we're thinking about what we how we write the wine up. Now, we will have tasted it mm-hmm. three, four, five times after that, but he's got his original notes and they're always bloody bang on. And, you know, he's saying, oh, a little bit of cinnamon bark or a little bit of mm-hmm. bergamot or juniper something. And you're like, oh, God, I'm only just starting to get that now. I've tasted it half a dozen times and you've told me and how did he get it all straight away but you know that's why he's a master of wine yeah have you learned a lot from him as maybe for wine tastings or just about wine regions uh from justin and i have to say fleur as well so fleur came on board recently justin's our head of wine fleur's our day say buyer as it Mm -hmm. were and they both buy together really you know they do a lot of work together and 
We're hugely lucky to have found Fleur, who has been working with Justin for a number of years. She's a Master of Wine student and a scholarship winner, Fregenet scholarship and Millezim scholarship winner. So she's an expert in wine, probably quite soon to become a Master of Wine, who knows? Mm -hmm. So we're quite heavily loaded on experts. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I learned from Justin, and probably what stays with me the most, is this general confidence he has. And therefore, he's completely happy, not just to admit, but just to, to let you know when he doesn't know something, you know, that this... It, it's such a wide subject that there's no way that you know even a master of wine knows everything about mm -hmm. you know not just all of the wines but all of the appellation rules which are so complicated all over <laughs> the world and you know there's there's too much to keep in your head at any one time so that confidence just to be able to say yeah I don't know that actually I'll get back to you is something that I learned from him pretty quickly mm -hmm. because it's just a great big fascinating world with a huge number of great varieties producers regions rules and it's complicated and big and no a one can bit. know it absolutely yeah. so what about the wines in the range then you've got a grunewald lena which i absolutely adore you've got a ferment in fact i mean yeah. do you have any favorites in the wine range I, are you allowed to have favorites I, are they like children no no it's pretty hard no i think at any one time i have a favorite right now i'd say the malbec but it's probably because okay. i'm drinking it <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm excited that you have an English Bacchus in the range. Yes. Three Choirs was one of the first vineyards I went to see many, many years ago in Gloucestershire. And it's just great that they're going from strength to strength. They're an English winery, yeah. I always think, that kind of stays in the background. I agree. You know, they've got lovely labels, mm -hmm. but it's not glitzy and uh, yes. over-marketed. But actually, the Bacchus, you know, we did tremendously well with it last year. It's a lovely wine. The art shows a blend that we did collaboratively with them so it's Amazing. their wines but we sort of collaborated over the final blend which is really cool to watch you know justin we've done it two years running with justin and, and martin the director of wine at three choirs the, the winemaker seeing them you know going back and forth with a little bit of this and a little bit less and it's principally the same you know wine from the same grape just picked at a different time from a different mm -hmm. part of the vineyard and you see this sort of wine changing and morphing in front of you and going in one direction, then back and small percentages here and there suddenly making a massive difference until mm. you know, everything ties together. And it's a little bit of alchemy and you know, some of it's science, some of it's winemaker knowledge. And there's, it's almost like a sprinkling of you know, weird fairy dust or something, but it just <laughs> comes together. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. intuition i suppose is yeah proper. well i suppose you said like how interesting it is to take say bacchus which is the great variety and pick it at different times but i was interested when i've done some work in vineyards just the difference maybe three days will make you know the acidity will be less the richness of the fruit and the sugar yeah. content will be higher and it is shocking how different it is and i've never done it enough but just for the few times i've tried the flavors in the grapes you can notice it so yeah i think that's that's probably quite a cool experience i think it's yeah that choosing the picking date and getting that right is so crucial crucial mm -hmm. um, because you're balancing the concentration and the sugar content and the, the acid mm. and if you go too late you lose one and get more of the other and you know too early and it's in the other direction so getting that bang on yeah pinot gris yeah. pinot grigio is probably a perfect example i always say to people if you drink pinot grigio from maybe italy veneto friuli veneto yeah. julie compared to a pinot gris in alsace <laughs> yeah you'll see the massive difference between high acidity and not that much flavor compared to slightly yeah. less acidity and concentration honey peach apricot yeah. it's um it, that's always my perfect example to to showcase yes. picking dates, and then, right? and, and then you get 
you get wines from both regions where actually because they have uh, vineyards with lower yields, vines with lower yields, because they put a little bit more care and effort along the way and because mm. they actually choose a slightly different picking date, that they go halfway and they get, you know, the, the more skillful ones will, you know, in the Alsace will get plenty of acid if they've oh, got yeah. better altitude or, or, you know, what what have you. And so, and the same in the northeast of Italy, that actually the better winemakers can get more fruit, more flavour, more concentration, and, and then do other things to get more body or texture to, to round it off. And yet they maintain that freshness. And it's really difficult. I mean, the one thing with Bacchus, which is really, I mean, I think interesting for me, is that 2018 was when we had the big hot summer was sort of mm-hmm. discussed in a lot of wine journals and trade magazines as being this mm-hmm. sort of bumper year. And it was in terms of volumes, it was it was high yielding. But having a really hot summer isn't that great for Bacchus because Bacchus's speciality is um, being able to deal with a relatively Cold. cool climate. Mm. And all of a sudden, the winemakers were faced with a really tricky decision because they couldn't leave it quite as long as they otherwise would. They needed to pick a little earlier, but then they were starting to have slightly washed out wine. So they were, you know, it was much harder finding a picking date, and really the 2018 back high, um, if that's even <laughs> a thing, that, that were good, yeah. were the ones that had more concentration and the winemakers had put more effort into when to pick and, and what to do with it thereafter. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I think actually, you know, this sort of ever warming climate in the UK, the, the wine that's come to the fore as our speciality in Bacchus might you know might end up suffering a little bit you know because Bacchus from Germany is you know they can't make wine varietal wine from Bacchus which is where it came from because it's too flabby mm. so yeah and, and Germany is not like an awful lot warmer than here well I think I've said this before I might have even said this on this podcast they predict in like another 50 years we're going to be growing Malbec and not even just down in the south of England apparently Malbec up towards Scotland or something I don't know oh my god yeah <laughs> well, so yeah interesting interesting thoughts yes. that's what we're growing what's everyone else going to be growing around the world well, I probably would have moved on to pineapples or something. Yeah, yeah pineapple uh, wine. Interesting. I hope knows? not. So to sum up, just my question to you is, what do you think is the future for Bag and Box? Have you seen a massive movement towards people changing from bottled wine to box wine? Are people still reluctant to try? What's your feelings? Gosh, that's a huge question. I mean, it I think we've taken a... We've taken a big punt on the fact that the future is, in one way or another, alternative packaging, I think, at, mm-hmm. at the very least. I went to a forum called the Sustainability of Wine Forum two years ago. Mm-hmm. It was the inaugural event. And it was really good, interesting. I think it was one day, lots of credible speakers, lots of stuff about water tables and how to save water throughout and how to make wine with different equipment to cut on carbon footprint. And a whole day of, you know, interesting subjects like um, organic fertilizers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the final bit was packaging, uh, sort of shoehorned in at the end. And mm-hmm. um, I was also shoehorned into that panel as a as a last minute substitute speaker. And it was really interesting. There was a guy, it was all Chatham House rules, so I can't assign any quotes to anyone. But um, mm-hmm. there was a guy who said, you know, I think we all know that the only way that wine can make a significant step towards sustainability is to stop using glass bottles. Mm. Everyone in the room nodded and, you know, it was accepted. You could see that it was accepted in the room. Mm-hmm. And then the subject moved on, you know. <laughs> it's um, the, it's the, the big wineries have to put wine into bottles. It's 
and the small winemakers definitely do because it's not on them to market alternative packaging. Mm. Uh, it's on startups like us, I guess. But I think in the end, the message is I can feel it growing weight. I can feel people getting okay. behind it, the sustainability factor and the value and convenience, but mainly that environmental factor and it's such an easy way to save. And yet, obviously, you can't do it if you can't find wines that you like. So the first step is for people in our position to put nice wines in boxes to gain the trust by having a sort of collating and curating a cool selection and range of wines, interesting wines, and that should continue to grow it out. And this year, I think we've really started to see a bit of a, a green revolution coming out of the back of COVID and mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely yeah. gaining weight. So I think it will. And we don't really meet resistance. Interestingly, I mean, wine lovers, people that are into wine, they're already won over because, you know, they understand it. Yeah. They've heard of it so many times. And um, actually, they're just excited to find good wines in boxes. And this is, I can vouch for that. I would like to categorically say... That's very kind. This is a very good one. And I also want to say, which obviously makes sense that as I've had it in the glass and I've been swirling it around it's been getting better and better I mean, yeah. it seems a bit weird taking a bag and box wine and then what pouring into a decanter no yeah. harm in that absolutely no harm in that for what you're going to drink you know if you know absolutely. you're going to drink half a bottle's worth there is three yeah. bottles in this lovely yummy bag <laughs> yeah no so, we, d- we definitely do it just like any other wines if something needs a bit of air then give it a bit of air and if you're not yeah. sure we would always say to our customers if you're not sure ask us but actually the best thing to do is if you're not sure to splash it around and see if it gets better you know like Absolutely. sometimes you just have to take a punt and sort of see how it goes well yeah i personally think that with a young wine you can't go wrong it's with the older no, wines that true. maybe if it's that old and that fragile yeah okay maybe you could damage it but either a young wine nothing's going to happen or it might open up so there's no harm go for it well it's interesting is that's a misconception that i think lots of people have that old serious wines need decanting well i mean to a certain extent you do decant them to leave the sediment in the bottle but you would normally decant it into sort of high-sided and very gently high-sided decanter so it doesn't get much oxygen because mm-hmm. they really don't need it you don't want to give them a lot of time because they're fragile by that stage and sort of starting to deteriorate rather than improve Absolutely. but yeah I, I agree on young wines you, you splash it around and they'll almost always improve absolutely right well anybody who is interested you can go to bibwine.co.uk and you can see the whole range you guys also do little tasting packs as well where people can get like these tiny little pouches and try like six different wines which is very cool we've really enjoyed doing the pouches in what happened is because we had planned to open this bar and then for obvious reasons couldn't Mm -hmm. we had a lot of wine lined up and we wanted you know we had been looking forward to standing behind a bar chatting about wines Uh, Mm -hmm. and we also thought that it was a good idea that people were able to taste our wines so with everyone stuck at home we thought well why don't we provide some entertainment and also an opportunity to taste our wines and give us you know the opportunity to chat about them and we bought some little pouches and filled them up and sent them out and it went really well feedback was great so we've developed it further and i think we'll be doing it regardless of lockdowns or anything like that because it's very popular and the idea of tasting wines at home i think it has grown and is successful yeah. it's just easy accessible and fun so and then also they're pouches rather than little bottles so again you know you're not having to cart around loads of glass which is heavier but also mm-hmm. requires smelting down in a glass furnace which is incredibly bad for the environment so you know still ticking that same box yeah 
can anybody outside of the UK get these or is it still at the moment exclusive just to us? <laughs> it, it is exclusive. Uh, oh, just sorry, to everyone. Us. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it, it's um, yeah, just because we haven't got that set up. We're nowhere near it. Yeah. You know, we're learning with the pouches as well. We Our first pouches were great and people loved them, but the longevity of the wine was a bit of an issue. Anytime you've got a small volume of wine, mm-hmm. it's going to struggle to maintain its freshness for a long time so we've now developed a sort of second batch of pouches and these have got an amazing what's called otr oxygen transmission rate super low it's Mm -hmm. just like glass almost Mm -hmm. and so these will do a couple of weeks but still it makes the logistics a couple of weeks at at least yeah the logistics are are more challenging because of that well it's interesting that anyway it's evolving it's changing so you went from something that didn't last for more than a few days to now something that lasts a few weeks so everyone in europe my friends in America, wait, wait for it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have had a little bit of interest. You'd be better off filling them in, you know, if you wanted to distribute them in America, it'd be even better off filling them there. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, technical challenges. Exactly. Ollie, thank you so much for just discussing this really cool project. The boxes are amazing. The wine tastes delicious. And I think you and the siblings, whoever decided it, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great decision. So good well, luck with this bar, you. maybe. Yeah, no, it's still on the cards. Good. We will see. Not immediately, for obvious reasons, but we, yeah, we will see. But uh, thank you for having me no, and it was great. putting up with my moaning oh. on and on about box wines. And uh, it's been really fun. So yeah, thanks thank very much. Thank you. And we'll speak again soon. Brilliant. Take care. Cheers, Janina. Thanks. So after that chat, I started looking up a little bit more information about weight of glass bottles. And I was sadly not surprised to see that glass actually accounts for 60% of the weight when you're talking about a case of 12 bottles. And then, of course, keep in mind afterwards, you need to melt down that glass. So that's extra energy needed there as well. Really interesting. If you look at a pallet of boxed wine, it weighs 30% less than a standard pallet of wine that's in glass bottles. But on top of that, it can hold 80% more wine. So I'll leave you guys to do the maths. Now, I hope that chat convinced you all of the reasons why you should get yourself a Bib Wine Co. bag in box. Well, obviously, if you're in the UK, um, if you are listening further afield, I know of Bibovino, sells in France, Switzerland, the West Indies, Thailand, even the Caribbean. Sadly, not to America. I know a lot of my listeners are in America. And the US actually, in fact, is a very big market for bag in box, apparently. So any of you in America, tell me, are there any companies over there achieving greatness? I would love to know. So whilst this year is still uncertain and we need to stay strong and positive, I thought that for this episode, this quote I found on the website of Juliana Glass was quite apt. And it says, good things take time, stay patient and positive. Everything is coming together once it's fermented. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure that's not the original quote, but I think I like this one better. (laughs) Now, may I take this opportunity just to wish you all a happy new year. No matter what, we can still write our own story. So I hope you all choose happiness this year. Stay strong mentally. Find those little reasons to be grateful and create powerful and meaningful connections. And thank you. Thank you all for your support in 2020. Six months of doing these podcasts solo and it's been super hard work. 
but so much fun and your comments as always are so appreciated and I can only ask you kindly to subscribe and share this podcast if you're enjoying it and you haven't done it already so feel free to get in touch by email that's yanina at eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk or on instagram at eatsleep underscore wine repeat you have all my details in the show notes plus the link to the transcript also don't forget you can come join the team at patreon.com slash eat sleep wine repeat to listen to exclusive episodes just for patreon members so see you then and until next time cheers to you